Hello and welcome to We Don't Have a Title for This Podcast. Uh, I'm Rob Long. I'm coming to you from sunny Southern California. On the line with me is Jonah Goldberg from Washington, D.C. Jonah, how are you? I am well. You caught me mid-drink of coffee, but otherwise I'm well. <laughs> okay. And also on the line, John Pedortz from New York City. John, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm awash in, uh, in guilt and anxiety. <laughs> well, that's good. That's, <laughs> that's uh, uh, guilt about what? Or just, you know, just normal. breathing, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm using up oxygen that, yeah, you know, that much. I, I'm, 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 I'm spewing out carbon dioxide. It's <laughs> bad news. <laughs> well, last, uh, last time we all three were speaking, which is about a month ago, uh, I, I have to bring this up. Uh, John mentioned, uh, gave a very, very lengthy uh, 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 diatribe rant slash, you know, I don't know what. He invade against Twitter within five minutes of the end of the podcast. (laughs) He had rejoined Twitter and is now, I mean, I was going to suggest that maybe if you're going to have guilt and anxiety about Twitter because you're back on with a vengeance. Well, you know... I gotta, I gotta procrastinate some way. My claim was that I was procrastinating too much, and I was also feeling like I was getting into too many stupid uh, Twitter arguments with people. So my my resolution was, if I went back on Twitter, I wouldn't argue as much, and I haven't been arguing as much, and I've been blocking a lot of people when they get annoying to me. So that's my. Uh, yeah, I, I I block people. I have a pretty hair trigger when it comes to blocking people too, because I figure my personal timeline is my property, and if I don't want to see you in there, I, they have no right to it. And the only thing I wish is that it caused you have no some, right to my timeline, man. <laughs> I wish it caused some physical pain on the other side that you could hear, like it just you know, <laughs> tiny like, little, <laughs> just like a little ah when you hit block, because you could hear them scream on the other side, but. I guess that's too much to ask for. I want to activate. I want to activate their pain collars. You know, a tiny little yeah, just a little tiny pinprick of electric shock. Just just in the middle of the day. Oh wow, somebody just blocked me. How is that different though? Can I ask a real, real question? I mean, this is actually somebody from the outside. How is that different from the old corner, which I know you guys were on? I, I would say the old corner because it's changed a little bit. It's still very good, but it's different now. I mean, how, how is that different from that? Because what because back then I, I felt like you guys could get into some serious arguments. And and I don't know how any of you got anything done. Well, well yeah, but it was, it was it was a much higher collegial level. I mean, it wasn't like arguments with some guy um, who ate too many paint chips as a kid and is now like just shouting weird stuff at you on Twitter. I mean, it was okay. like you know arguments among colleagues, kind of thing. Yeah, and the other thing is that that I I, I occasionally have a uh, sarcastic tendency to uh, to. No. Uh, send tweets in response to <laughs> things that uh, certain reporters and journalists who um, yes. I consider um, uh, <laughs> insufficiently distanced from the from the uh, reality say the, no insufficiently distanced from the um, from the lapdoggery of Washington journalists and their connection to the president to make fun of them for earnest tweets that seem to accept, um, you know, blatant, preposterous spin that I don't agree with. 
and given that they are capable of such earnestness, uh, they often respond earnestly um, and uh, and with uh, with um, challenging uh, anger that then provokes it. So I've stopped doing that because I figure, you know, it's like poking fun at people without a sense of humor is a is a pointless exercise. The way that Twitter is like the old corner years ago, and I think Jonah demonstrate I'm not, I haven't been in the corner since 2007 but is that he and I in particular he having basically originated the form but others but put up a lot a lot of one-liners jokes you know individual right. japes little short you know bursts those are almost entirely gone from the blogosphere because they have they have migrated to Twitter so that part of the corner uh, which was, you know, you never knew when someone was going to crack wise is kind of gone. Um, the argument part, I think, came from the fact that there was a febrile uh, set of um, disagreements. Um, wait, 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 wait. Right. I, I'm just uh, have to. I'm just uh, googling febrile. Go ahead. Uh, okay, there <laughs> Go was ahead. a very energetic. Uh, degree of okay. disagreement on the right <laughs> on certain very serious issues in in you know in in say the middle of the last decade uh, on how the war in Iraq was being prosecuted on immigration um, on questions of whether or not you know George Bush and the Republicans were overspending and did, were they being blamed for things that they shouldn't be blamed for and a lot of that and so uh, those arguments were actually taking place in public on the right, a lot of them in the corner. Um, and, uh, you know, with the advent of, um, of the Obama administration and the kind of uh, polemical role that the right now, you know, has adopted in trying to take on the presumptions of Obama and the Democrats and the left, um, the, some of the disagreements have been muted. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think all that's right. I mean, but you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm just as the guy who came out with the corner, uh, the the real pretense of it was. I mean, part of and part of the problems to the extent that you know the corner has, still has you know has better traffic today than it did eight years ago. But you know, the, part of the problem with the corner to the extent it has a problem these days is is that it is so red. It is sort of like the central right. hub. It's the morning news brief for a lot of a lot of conservatives, and um, and it's lost some of that collegial chatter for a host of various reasons, which I would like to return now that my book tour is over and all that kind of stuff. But um, that's one of my new projects. But uh, the original idea of it was that the 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 stereotype about conservatives is that we're all monolithic, we all think the same way, you know, um, that we are. Um, sort of humorless, and that there's no serious disagreement among us. And and these ideas really came to the fore, or this stereotype really came to the fore under Bush for all the obvious and maybe less obvious reasons. And what I want to do is create the fiction, because of course it's a fiction, of what the, a sort of the coffee break room at National Review would sound like. And the reality, you know, the reality is, is that conservatives argue with each other all of the time right, about right. all sorts of things about what to believe, what to think, what the right position should be. And so what I wanted to communicate, because I'm a big believer in showing, not telling, is 
I wanted to communicate that the, there actually is that sort of rich, as John would say, febrile uh, <laughs> you know, conversation going on on the right. And I, I think that's a useful thing to say, to show, because, and, and it's also useful to show people that conservatives have a sense of humor and that they're actually human beings. And, and, and um, you had to show that through a conversation. So as long as you were like at least one notch to the right of center, sort of like Rob, um, <laughs> but that counts you, out here, man. You you qualified as a conservative and could be part of the conversation. The weird thing, the most amazing thing about it was that it was. That you're right that it was so funny. I mean, it still is funny. It still has witty stuff there. But you're you're also correct. I think it's become a kind of a just by by virtue of its success, it's become a very institutional uh, place to go. But uh, I, I always I, I did find that useful. I mean, it was useful for me sometimes because I would go to some of these conservative events and everybody was so serious all the time, and uh, it was pretty good, pretty good for me because I get to be the I get to tell a few jokes and be really popular. But but the uh, the standard for what passed as funny was pretty low. You know, it's always like it was the it was the equivalent of when um, Republicans would say, uh, "We've got a star-studded, celebrity-filled convention. We have." Bo Derek and Pat Boone, and it's always like, well, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they're great people and all, but they're not, you know, they, 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 they both those people occasionally have trouble getting a table at a restaurant, you know. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, and so, good lord, my the hound from hell is barking in agreement with me. But uh, so, so that, I, I enjoyed it, kind of as, as an audience member because I was never on it. I kind of enjoyed reading it and, and, and laughing and joking around. But and I also think it probably did a good job. It probably did accomplish what Jonah said, which is that it made some conservatives in America who are it's very easy to ghettoize for the national media. You know, you, if you're a if you're a political writer, you're a conservative political writer, or if you're a, or you're an arch conservative political writer, you're not just a writer. Um, it made some of them realize that actually there are personalities here that are fun or funny or interesting and uh, worth um, paying attention to. I mean, to that extent, mission accomplished. I guess. I mean, uh, we we seem to be constantly talking about how li- liberal and left wing the media is all the time. But I have to say, I d- I do every now and then stare astonished at the cover of this week's Newsweek, which is Niall Ferguson's uh, cover story. Hit the road, Barack. Why we need a new president? And think to myself, what? How did that? Can we settle for, before we get into the deep meta analysis of Tina Brown's latest attempt for for attention? Um, <laughs> well, can, she, she kind of deserves it, don't you think? Can we settle? Can we just settle for the sake of our listeners and and for the edification? Nile or Neil? Myself? Is it Nile or Neil? It's Neil. 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 Neil Ferguson. Okay. It's Neil, as he would tell you. It's Neil. I, I think he's actually Neil. Neil is in the Matrix. <laughs> he's neil one he is the one i neil uh, like neil diamond yeah that's right <laughs> okay. that's right neil only diamond. only with a with a welsh scottish accent right okay i think i actually have dined with him he's he's told me that i have to say but uh uh but i i just never think about him um has, has anybody read that uh, I, I haven't neither one of us has read it why? Why? Have we, <laughs> but here's my question: Why have we not read it? Don't you think it's? Because, I haven't read it either. Because we've I, lived it, Rob. <laughs> that's your guilt and your anxiety. I don't need. I don't need to read Neil Ferguson summarizing arguments that you know I've been making daily for four years. That he's now willing, with great 
goodness of spirit and high good, you know, humor to release to the public in the pages of Newsweek. You know, I'd like to know where he was when it was hard to be arguing against Obama. Not when it's not when it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say what I like. What I've enjoyed about all of this, and I, I agree with John entirely. I, mean, I like Neil Ferguson. I like some of his books a great deal, and I'm glad he did it. And um, you know, and I'm troubled that, or I, I'm sure I should say put it this way: I am sure that what Tina Brown doing is is this is the equivalent of buying plenary indulgences from conservatives. And do you think she cares? What, 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 uh, uh, do you think that's really what's going on? I mean, I hope so, but do you think it really it's, that's really it? No, I don't, I don't think that's the primary motivation. I think primary motivation is 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 the the stink of of failure and urine coming off of Newsweek <laughs> and how they are that, just simply that could be Tina though that could be <laughs> no here's just... how I, here's how I see it here's what happened Tina and Neil are having lunch or dinner and Neil says I like this uh, Paul Ryan I had dinner with him a couple of years ago he's a remarkable person and Tina Brown says really. No one I know says anything like that. How interesting. And then he says, you know, because he chose Paul Ryan, I think, you know, Romney should be president and Obama's done a bad job. And Tina Brown says, you do? No one I know thinks that. How fascinating. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And I can get a cover out of it that doesn't have an aged picture of Princess Diana on it. (laughs) <laughs> or a black and white photo of the 97-year-old Woody Allen. Right, or, 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 or Mitt Romney, you know, covered, drenched in blood. Right, or, so, you know, that that's, I think it was more the, good heavens, famed historian, you know, Neil Ferguson, says he thinks Obama's a bad president. Golly gee. There were were conservatives I know, Andrew (laughs) Sullivan and David Frum, don't say that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think I think John has put the hit the nail on the head on that. I think that's exactly exactly what happened. Um, What I do think is fascinating, though, is the um, absolute rage. This, you know, uh, what's it say? A Krugman. And Fallows and some other, you know, Weberati of the left types have all gone apoplectic. Like it is that, that having an anti Barack Obama Newsweek cover is like using a church as a stable to these people. They think it is just a sacrilegious affront to all that they hold holy. And you know, this is the same magazine that what three months ago said Barack Obama was the first gay president. And there was like no fact checking, no like because they're just just you know celebratory applause. And here you have someone who's basically speaking for somewhere between forty and forty five percent of the American people at a minimum, saying that Barack Obama shouldn't get reelected, and they treat it as if it's a it's an issue dedicated towards mainlining you know pedophilia or something. I mean, it is fascinating. <laughs> it, it is a very str- I mean, I, while I agree with John, I also feel like there's a part of it. There she's sitting in a room and someone's saying, listen, you've got six issues of this magazine left because we don't have any more money. After six more issues, there's no more payroll. So you got to make the next six issues something crazy. 
and she had all these heretical, crazy uh, uh, covers. You know, uh, you know, uh, cannibalism, the new foodie obsession, uh, all sorts of crazy things. Like, and she thought, well, what's the craziest thing I could do? And it's, 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 it's run Neil Ferguson's uh, uh, anti Barack Obama piece. I think, I think, part of it is just this last dying gasp of this magazine which oh, that's uh, true. won't that make is, it to election day that is certainly true um you know and uh you know trying to say you know so she clearly has now gotten to the point where she believes that you know even bad attention is attention and she in the sense that she published something that has spurred you know outrage among uh, very uh, interesting people. I'm looking here at James Fallows's post uh, against uh, Ferguson's piece um, in which he says, a tenured professor of history at my undergraduate alma mater, which is, of course, <laughs> a college in Boston. I, I don't right, you know, right, want right. to say which <laughs> one. Um, yeah, don't drop uh, the H-bomb. But the headline no, is, no. as a Harvard <laughs> alum, I apologize, has written a cover story for Newsweek that is so careless and unconvincing, I wonder how he will presume to sit in judgment of the next set of student papers he has to grade. <laughs> um, which is, you know, it, this is, this is uh, it's an interesting uh, thing to say, given, uh, given that uh, I was unaware that any professor at Harvard actually graded a student's paper, including... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> But it does uh, to fulfill that that that, that the, the the insistent need of every Harvard graduate to tell you within the first five seconds that they graduated from Harvard in more elaborate ways. Um, I, well, I, I kind of like the image of of Rob's theory that this is a last gasp attempt for attention. It'd be kind of funny to do like a Weekly Standard kind of parody thing of you know the. It, this is just crazy enough to work, right? <laughs> um, and the uh, the crazy ideas that they ruled out. They rejected coverage. <laughs> yeah, right. before, before they actually went with the wild idea of having, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> someone actually be anti-Obama. Yeah, there was uh, – so, uh, you know, she decided she was only going to – she was only going to run a cover that made all the editors spontaneously vomit when she showed it to them. Right. And she showed them war crimes and ca- every single taboo, incest, but you see, everything. This is a, this and, is and, just, but also the, the preteen suckling out of woman's breast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Enough, right? <laughs> right. That, that, that came was time. That this. was time. That was oh, time. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but here's the thing Tina Brown in 1987 was sufficiently, genuinely a controversialist, enough of a controversialist or someone so interested in crazy buzz that she wouldn't have done what, you know, Barack Obama has to go. She would this week be doing a piece called why Todd Aiken is right. That's what the old Tina Brown, if she really were following her, you know, following her absolute passion for creating buzz at all costs in the you know the, the Tina Brown twenty five years ago with Twitter with everything else that's what the Tina Brown of today would do would be to run the provocative thing to do would be to run something about how yes uh, you know women can prevent pregnancy when they're when they're raped you know something like that that that's that's what Buzz now is 
this is fake buzz. This is like having Paul Krugman and James Fallows attack you was nothing. You know, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's really not even. That's like yeah. you know, that's just some kind of weird autonomic response of the you know of the liberal nervous system. Um, but you know, really go, really do it, really hit the nerve, you know? Um, but of course somebody like Tina Brown never really would hit the nerve because that's, she's not really interested in total provocation. She's interested in teeny bits of provocation. And remember Tina Brown lives on the upper West, upper East side of Manhattan and hangs around in, you know, in the Hamptons and all of that. And a lot of people there, more people than people realize have turned on Obama, mostly for, you know, very crude finance, you know, they don't like, what he's done to their, in, you know, to their industry, to the, you know, these attacked hedge funds. They don't like that he's attacking banks. They don't like that he, in his 2009, uh, you know, handling of the bank bailouts, that he put the, you know, he 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 put a salary limit on banking executives. So you know, their ox has been gored. All these people who supported Obama in 08 and who you know we could have told them. That was going to happen to them, and so they're not. So she her, hears people like that. She doesn't have any difficulty knowing people who might say that they don't don't like Obama. Right. But you know, they don't like those Republicans either with their you know with their silliness on abortion and their ridiculous absurdity on this and their silliness on they that. All, all Republicans think that a woman uh, that a woman that a legitimate rape, woman when she's legitimately raped, which I guess means when she's raped on Broadway, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, you know, this is an astonishing thing. Be- Bethany Mandel, who works for me, has a, ha- put up a blog post on 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 the Commentary Magazine website about thinking about how there was this mad rush by by the right the minute that Aiken opened his mouth to distance themselves, to attack him, to talk about how he was wrong. Politicians fleeing, you know, officially the head of the NRSC saying he should get out, Carl Rove saying he's not going to give him money, Romney attacking him, right? Biden says y'all going to be in chains last week, right? Crickets? Do I hear anything? No, no, I no I, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. I, and and uh and he gets not it's 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 nothing, right? Nothing. It's a pass. Yeah. Total pass, you know. I mean, so not that not that I just think what's interesting about that is this notion Yet again, that you know, Republicans always walk in lockstep, you know, to the to the furthest right that they possibly can, right. and you know, lib and Democrats and liberals are always are so open minded and broad, and they have such disagreements. I, I would like to know what you know, I mean. Aside from the disagreement that Obama shouldn't compromise and he should, you know, take Republicans out and you know stomp them, you know, take Lipizzan or Stallions and stomp on their heads with them. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm not sure what it is that they disagree about. Much. No, I, 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 like, I mean, I, I think that's right. The only because I did, I had a tweet yesterday, um, something to the effect of Mr. Biden, um, given how the entire GOP has immediately turned on uh, Aiken, um, are you are you reassured or dismayed right. by the way the party supports your jackassery? And uh, Salon labeled it the dumbest tweet of the day. I got all this sort of trollery coming after me about it. And um, but the, the, I think there is a there is an important difference, right? In that 
at least well, I don't want to give a percentage, but some significant portion of the conservatives turning on Aiken has to do with the fact that they really want to win that Senate seat. And right. um, the the support that you get for Biden or the support. I mean, think about think about, you know, the support that uh, Anthony Weiner had for months um, uh, or you look or the support to this day that Bill Clinton, who was who was legitimately accused of legitimately raping somebody. <laughs> That's exactly um, right. You know, That's exactly not, right. Not talking about some sort of harebrained theory of biology, but actually raping somebody. Um, so much of it has to do with the relationship to power politics than it has to do with anything like 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 principle. And if 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 I think if a lot of Republicans thought that Aiken could survive, there'd be fewer calls for him to get, to step down. I mean, I think that's that's the honest truth of it. Well, yeah. no doubt. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. But so what? you know, so everything is mixed. You know, things are always mixed together, but. The reality of the circumstances are that the more you think about what Aiken said, the worse it becomes. Yeah. You know, I, I, right. I wrote a blog post in which I said that he did an extraordinary offense to pro-lifers because, you know, the the moral grappling um, among, you know, uh, pro-lifers with the incredibly difficult issue of what happens – if a pregnancy is caused by incest or rape, is an elevating aspect of pro-life philosophy. It ca- it forces them to face, you know, something very difficult and say, whatever is the circumstance, that is a person in there mm-hmm. who is ensouled and who is, you know, deserving of human rights and is in and is innocent of whatever char whatever crime was committed in the creation of him or her. And Aiken comes along and what Aiken says is, hey, guess what? Magically, this isn't a problem. Don't worry about <laughs> it. it. Yeah, because right. women have a mystical capacity a yeah. to, re- you know, to uh, repel the seed of a rapist, yeah, yeah. you know, and nothing will happen. So please don't worry about it. Um, so guess what? This is not something we have to grapple with seriously. This is something we can just ignore. What a relief. <laughs> bring, yeah, except, bring on except, the marching band. But it's one of these that's things. That, it's, it's part of it. But it's a clown car, right? Because it gets stupider. More The stupidity just keeps coming out. Because he, in the same statement, he also says, well, let's just assume that the, the Jedi midichlorians don't stop the rapists, you know, uh, you know, seed from planting and somehow she gets pregnant um so he's still allowing for the fact that some legitimate rape victims get pregnant <laughs> and if you're going to do that then why the hell are you talking about this at all well, because, because he talked to a doctor jonah <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, but, he right. talked to a doctor and the doctor said eh listen all right, but but agreed that the other side has this agreed that there's uh, there's a sort of imbalance in the way these people are treated. Why, why is it always out? I mean, why is it? Why does it seem to me anyway that it's always our side that has this craziness about these issues? I mean, and why is it perfect that he's on the what is it, the House Science Subcommittee or something? I mean, <laughs> what, what, why is that? I mean, why? 
why why do why, why are these people why can why can you if you are a partisan opponent legitimately take this guy who's running for the senate and wrap him around our necks and well, why is it always ours why, why why do we have to put why doesn't somebody in the i mean i can't believe i'm saying this but somebody in the missouri state republican party whoa it can't be him he's nuts well i mean look there are two ways of looking at this one of which is that there were three candidates in the Missouri Senate primary, Republican primary. He got 36 percent and the others together got, you know, 60. Right, right. Um, so it's not as though, you know, it's not as though he, you know, won an absolute majority of Missourians. Clearly conservative Missourians, 60 percent of conservative Missourians did not think that he was the candidate for them. It's not like he won an overwhelming victory. On the, on the other hand, you know, just to be just to be you know fair and balanced here. Um, you know, it's one thing to come up with these views. You have you know, I would guess close to the entirety of the Democratic caucus in the Senate now uh, that you know supports the act of uh, pulling um, an eight-month-old uh, you know um, unborn child halfway out of a woman's body and crushing its skull and sucking the brains out so that the so that the the baby can be aborted while being born. Um, that's a pretty radical, you know. I mean, Pat Moynihan well, probably called nice that infanticide, and that is something that is a an utterly nice uncontroversial view on the. Yeah, you no, know. Obama's position is worse than that, right? Because he's against the Born Alive Infants Act, which said that if by accident, while aborting a baby, it actually is delivered alive, um, you can't then kill it separated from its mother and he says no 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 you can't do that um doctors have to be able to kill a fully delivered living baby um that's a pretty radical position i mean i i understand where rob is coming from with the question but this is one of the things that drives me crazy is that the, the way the left does it is they define what the touchstone issues of being pro or anti-science are right oh, that's and true. that's right and so i mean i have that chapter of it in, in my book about this you know where they 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 pick and choose what counts as being pro-science? And it's a cherry-picked list. And there are lots of things from uh, bio you know, genetically modified foods, which would save millions upon millions of starving people. The left is against it for no scientifically sound basis. And yet they count as – yet no one says they're anti-science. They were against golden rice, which is this vitamin A-fortified rice that would um, cure blindness – among thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of third world kids. And they were against it because it was genetically modified and they wanted to keep it out of those countries. Um, you can do with nuclear power, um, the offshore right. oil ban. Um, you know, you can go through this. You know, we had that guy in, what was that guy in Congress, the black congressman, who thought that if some island got overpopulated, it would tip over? Um, and no one. <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, that whatever. Was, they're never anti-science. Well, I, you know, where and that's where more I scientifically live, illiterate than Aikens, whatever Aiken said. That, that's sort of true. When I, where, where I live in, in uh, Venice, California, <laughs> uh, when I go to my yoga class, which I do uh, twice a week, go ahead, do five minutes on my yoga class if you have to. I, I, um, 
Uh, I often sit there with a bunch of people who are all, you know, from the west side of L.A., extremely liberal. We sit and we, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a certain amount of beginning and the ending of a yoga class of uh, the great spirit in all of us and the chanting and oming and, and saying, you know, set your intentions and send whatever it is to the, the healing power of our uh, vibes here. See, I was psyched there because when you said you go to your yoga class and you're sitting there, I was like, this is yoga I can get behind. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's the very beginning, right? And, yeah. um, and then, you know, all very, uh, it's all very weirdly superstitious, frankly. It's superstitious nonsense, right? Uh, you know, Ganesh, the elephant-headed god, is going to smile on us. And then they all leave the yoga class and, and, uh, and get in their cars and, and talk about how terrible and anti-science Republicans are. Whereas they believe a whole host of craziness about about uh, uh, um, uh, uh, vaccinations and uh, and our spirit guides and all this other crap that uh, we're supposed to put up with, uh, but but that's still there's still something about the brand. We have to be honest that we have to be more we have to police more carefully. I mean, weren't these things weren't we all better off when when these Senate candidates were chosen in smoke filled rooms? Well, the problem here is twofold. One of which is that you what you are what you're revealing is the, you know, upside and downside and side side of of the involvement of um, you know, people of people's passions becoming part of the political discussion which really wasn't the case, you know, in the United States, you know, before the modern era, the, you know, I mean, not that not that there weren't heated issues like slavery, but politics itself ran, you know, on the basis of a very very narrow band of ideas, and most people were chosen for their personal connections and mm-hmm. for their, you know, and for their ability to work with uh, other powerful people in other industries and places like that, and you know, when the in the modern era, really after the after the Second World War, with modern media and everything like that, um, any control like that started to slip away. And our politics is immeasurably better. It's more honest. Um, you know, it is more reflective of the views of the public. It is uh, politicians. I think are actually, on the whole, better educated, smarter less corrupt in the sense that they don't they're not in the personal sway of a machine or a boss somebody like that um and the downside is that they're often you know they're too ideological now you know over the last 10 or 15 years some of them come out of pure ideological motivation and they are too ideological and less pragmatic Whereas a hundred years ago they were only pragmatic and had almost no ideology right. whatsoever. Right. The big fat senator we always see in uh, in old movies that with this. Yeah, the or congressman. I mean, the Congress. You know, the the, the mediocrity of the, oh, of yeah. the of the U.S. Congress over over you know two centuries. There's a reason why almost no one has ever risen from the House to the presidency. There's a reason why. Paul Ryan comes along and everyone goes, oh, my goodness, Paul, look at him. He, he wrote a budget. You know, look, who does he know a lot about the budget? Why shouldn't he? He's, a, he's an American <laughs> politician. <laughs> they should all be able to write a budget. <laughs> what they do for a living. This would be like saying to me, oh, look, you know how to use an adverb. You're a writer. Good heavens. You know what a preposition is. Thank you so Wow. Make that man president. 
Um, I, do like Paul I never Reiser. thought of it that way. It's exactly right. But it's kind of it's preposterous, <laughs> you know, to act as though because somebody takes an interest in you know in the in the innards of public policy that makes him a wildly exceptional person. But that's the nature of the House of Representatives. Yeah, I, if, if if this podcast for whatever bizarre reason takes off, maybe this will be this will be the moment where we can launch a new a, a, a sub feature of it where I do my why it's really all liberals fault rant. All right. Um and I think Which I agree. we could we could get that this why it's it. all liberals fault. Fault. We could get this actually sponsored. Okay. This so is one part. Yeah. This week's installment of why it's really all Brought liberals to fault. You by Todd Aiken <laughs> yeah. for Senate. Sponsored <laughs> <laughs> uh, by sponsored by Monsanto. Bringing the, science to your dining room. The Ramjack Corporation. Um so uh you know, I think I think John's absolutely right about how politics used to be this very narrow band of issues, and every now and then some major issue would bubble up from outside of the accepted, accept, acceptable spectrum, like anti-communism or slavery, right? But basically, what politics was about was a very small fraction of our lives. Now, it's sort of to me, it's sort of like the fights over Supreme Court justices and the judiciary generally, right? The reason why we have such huge fights over appointing judges is because judges have become so much more important than they used to be. They, defu- they, they, they have plenary, almost czar-like powers over vast swaths of human life these days. And it is entirely rational when you imbue judges with that kind of power over society that you would have big political fights over them because this is your last chance to sort of have a fight over these people. And the, one of the reasons why politics has become so much more sweeping and so much more all-inclusive and cultural is because the le- is that the left has imbued in government and in the judiciary especially, but in politics generally, a total philosophy of life. And, um, the, and it is therefore you – know, and so Republicans have sort of started fighting fire with fire. There's a reason why we used to be called the Leave Me Alone Coalition is we, didn't, we were resisting the politicization of, of the warp and woof of, of everyday life. But if, you're gonna, if that stuff is going to be politicized, you know, then, then you have no choice to, but to be involved in that fight. And the, um, you know, this, this is a point that is very hard to communicate to people on college campuses. But the left are the aggressors in the culture war. I mean, I say it over and over again. And so the reason why you get politicians who have these, you know, not necessarily Aiken, but, you know, it's just in general, who are asked to opine about incredibly obscure, seemingly irrelevant subjects is because everything is political now. And the people who are responsible for that are not conservatives. They're liberals. Right. And here's the other thing. So the other the other aspect of this is this uh, what might be called the democratization of pseudoscience. So that is everyone now can cite there's a study of six mothers. It turns out that if they put sugar in the water of mm-hmm. their children when their children are four, they're more they will be you know twelve times more likely to you know knock over a bank in twenty years. You know it, these, and so everyone now can pull out of his hat a fake study. 
as an empirical support for what is ultimately a value judgment or a or a moral argument because now we don't agree on the moral basis of anything so what we need to do is to appeal use pseudoscience as a method of strengthening our case and ultimately people don't really care what the what the pseudoscience is because they don't care about the empirical they care about the moral that's what that's what motivates people that's what that's what you know binds people's passions the notion that you can improve somebody's test outcome by 4% is not the sort of thing that is going to engage people emotionally and spiritually and get them to you know stuff envelopes and go crazy what engages them are moral arguments about what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong and what is good for the future and what is bad for the future, what's good for the country and what's bad for the country. And this patina, which Jonah is particularly good at writing about, this patina of empiricism um, is an incredible, uh, has been an incredibly distorting force. Um, because it means that we then have these arguments, not about the shape of the table, but about the resiliency of the data. You know, I've been spending now months reading polls and, you know, polls and they supply all this, you know, what are called crosstab data on polls. And you go into the crosstab data. One of the things that you discover is that polling is not science, you know, Polling really isn't a science because it, it, it requires a series of assumptions. Really good pollsters, as it turns out, are kind of um, social philosophers who come up with an idea based on a lot of what they hear and see and look around about what the composition of the electorate might be. And then they apply that idea to the raw data that they collect and they create a picture of what they think the electorate is going to look like in November. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. And by the time the election rolls around, some of this is now pretty firmly clear. And so they can, uh, you know, massage the data to make sure that at the, in the end result, they're not too far off. Mm-hmm. But in the end, if you look at this, what you're saying is what do people do? They say, well, people agree with me on this. After all, 62% of people polled say they don't like this or 72% say they don't like that. Or f- Now, that's fine because those are big margins, so you can presume that they're probably – but what if it's 47-45? So right now we have two tracking polls that have essentially have Romney and, and Obama tied. So one has Obama up by two. One has Romney up by two. They do this every day. They've been doing it for months, right? Ultimately, and then some polls come in that have Obama up by six and Romney down by two. And in the end, what all this what all this shows is that this is as close to it as far as we can tell. This is a tied race. Everything is tied, right? So, what happens? People articles come out where somebody who likes Obama says Obama's up by four points. Clearly, you know, in the in the real clear politics average, clearly. Romney's in trouble, but that is not actually what the data say. But in but people who aren't digging into it and don't don't understand these niceties simply take that as news, and then they panic. And they if they want Romney to win, they panic, and if they want Obama to win, they get this you know patina of self satisfaction. And none of this is helpful. <laughs> not, it's all a distraction. It's all noise. And much of what we deal with in politics now is this noise, and much of what we deal with in social science is noise because it's all a fraud. It's all based on covering up 
the moral frame in which people function. And that's even what Todd Akin did. So what Todd Akin said, I'm heartbroken at the fact that people have to go through horrible criminal experiences, but those unborn children have human rights and they, they have a right to life. Instead, he says he talked to a doctor who told him that this is how science works. Science right. repel, right. you know, women's bodies repel, you know, <laughs> rapist yeah. seed. It's a superpower. It's a superpower. What is the – what? but he did that because that is what people who are not – who now believe they cannot simply speak to these things as a moral question do. They try to, they try to trump the other guy by silencing them, you know, with a piece of empirical data – but that's not what empirical data – that's not what a piece of empirical data is. A piece of empirical data is it was 72 degrees yesterday according to this thermometer right. that measures temperature. That's empirical data. Well, it's funny though. I mean I've been thinking about this I because mean, I, I think – not to take over Rob's job of moving the conversation along. But I think Aiken has gotten his share from us. Uh, True. And when, when John was talking about the the polling data and stuff, I was listening to NPR the other day, which I do often. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I like to monitor enemy, enemy broadcasts. No, um, but uh, they had a new, completely straightforward news piece, right, about how – about the presidential race. And you, you find these things all over the place once you start looking for them, showing how Obama is ahead according to these polls – and um, that things are looking better for him in the Electoral College or this or that or the other thing. And one of the, the funny upshots of this is is that this is so obviously, when you listen to how these people talk about this stuff, this is so, listen, so obviously them reassuring themselves yeah. that yeah. everything's going to be okay, that Obama's going to win. And the, prob- the irony of it is, is that by, in the process of them doing that, they encourage the, ulti- the, the other result because what Obama needs to win is greater enthusiasm and turnout from his base. And if those people think it's a foregone conclusion that Obama will win without them, they won't show up. If you tell a bunch of Tea Party types that right now they're a little behind but this thing is still winnable, they will take their mother off the ventilator yeah. and drag her down to the polling places. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, we're not going to solve that particular problem here. Although I, I do, I am persuaded by John's analysis. I think that probably is true. Once you sort of, but but also the truth is, once you sort of take, uh, w- once it all becomes an argument by the world's laziest people, by which I mean uh, political reporters on television, the absolute laziest people. It's all. It's so easy to argue about perception and about um, message because that means I'm, I'm, I'm arguing about. Which movies got better reviews than other movies? I don't have to actually see the movie. So essentially, you know, we can talk about Tina Brown's cover cover story of uh, Neil Ferguson's cover story in Tina Brown's Newsweek, but we don't have to actually read it because we're really just talking about how it might play to other people. I remember once going to a focus group for a TV show, and um, and you know, it's like you know, the focus group, twenty three people sitting in a room, uh, guided in some idiotic conversation about whatever it is you just spent three million dollars to do, and. Um, and they're all representative of different demographics. And somebody, the, the focus group leader said, and of course it's you know behind a one-way mirror. So I'm sort of standing behind the mirror. And the focus group leader says, um, "Did you all enjoy the show?" And one um, one uh, older woman raised her hand and she said, uh, "You know, I think this show would really be appealing to my demographic." 
And the lady said, well, uh, but did you enjoy it? And she said, uh, the, the focus group attendee said, um, yeah, I, I think that people my age will love this show. <laughs> she was unable, a, a civilian was unable to render a judgment that wasn't based on her position in sort of, you know, the demographic marketing group or whatever that demographic marketing smear is for, for, for uh, marketers, which was crazy, but I think has actually happened. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that you know, uh, you know, magazines are dead. I mean, I, I, which I, do, I do think they are dead because, or certainly news magazines are dead because uh, we no longer. Not dead. My magazine is very much alive. Well, that's what I mean. Okay, so, so a, a news magazine. I just wanted to say that. No, I think it's right, and, and you know, and are still doing very well. People are still reading those, right? But everything else seems to be dying. Yes, I mean, David uh, Carr just yeah. wrote about that in the New York Times. I think he made a oh, good yeah. point. I mean, where, where was that big? That big. The big, a big, na- a big ma- national magazine that used to drive the conversation, rather than what they do now, which is simply measure it and tell can you tell who's my, up, who's can down. I, can I tell my quick uh, focus group story? So I yeah. was working as a <clears throat> freelance corporate speechwriter, and we had to focus group something, or, or no, I think maybe it was I was working on a magazine. We had to focus group something, and we went somewhere, and we were sitting behind the one way mirror, and there are these uh, ten people on the other side. And uh, toward the end of the table, there's a uh, and you get this uh, list of who they are uh, that you can look at when you're behind the one way mirror. It says their names. It says their you know where they're from, how old they are, what they're you know their demographic, right? So there's someone there named KT, KT Sullivan or something like that, uh, down at the end of the table, <clears throat> and we're all and uh, KT Sullivan says this and KT Sullivan says that, and we pick up the. <laughs> Katie Sullivan's about 5'10", 5'11", hair sort of odd length and, uh, you know, sort of, and we all realize as we're watching this that we cannot figure out whether Katie Sullivan is a man or a woman. And so someone takes out the sheet and Katie Sullivan's there and uh, Katie Sullivan has not checked off male or female <laughs> uh, because you don't have to. There is no such thing since names and – and um, and so uh, as they're talking for an hour, there is a debate on the other side of the mirror. Is KT a man? Is KT a woman? Is KT a preoperative transsexual? Is KT a full transsexual? Is KT just, you know, a guy with long hair? Is KT a woman who's a little mannish? And so we never listened to the focus group because we were too <laughs> interested in the mysteries of the one person behind would, the, the – Would KT need to enjoy the uh, product, whatever the product was? I have no idea whether uh, KT enjoyed that's, that's, the product. But I think it was very good for KT's demographic Yes, <laughs> of right. one. KT, right. the demographic of one. Or demographic of two, depending on where, where he or she was in the transition. Yeah, I think I think Rob's woman speaking for her demographic is a license for a lifetime of New Yorker cartoons, right? Because you could have like you know the the man and the woman post post coital in bed smoking cigarettes, and the caption could be, "I think my demographic would find you a masterful lover," you know, or <laughs> you know, my daf- my demographic would think these are great baked potatoes, you know. <laughs> My 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 demographic made the honor roll at Saint Ignatius. <laughs> exactly. My demographic is smarter than your honor roll student. <laughs> Visualize my demographic. Uh, 
Uh, uh, so speaking of demographic, uh, I had lunch uh, last week with the uh, the mystery author uh, Andrew Claven, and uh, for those of you who are listening from Ricochet, this is Drew Claven is a uh, great contributor to Ricochet, um, and a wonderful writer. And he was telling me that he's uh, uh, that you know he's he's got a couple uh, film projects he wants to do, and so he had to take a little time off of uh, writing uh, adult fiction. But he said he he would not take any time off running young adult fiction because everybody knows kids read now and adults don't read, which is sort of the opposite of what it used to be. Uh, is that you guys both have kids? Is that true? Do you feel that that's uh, that, that that's a, that's actually it's a golden age of young adult fiction? Well, I don't know if it's a golden age. Um, it is certainly, and I don't my I I, I don't presume that my kids are representative of the demographic uh, necessarily. <laughs> um, Clearly, uh, they're you know almost entirely, if not totally, spurred by by the Harry Potter books. There has been a renaissance of you know fiction for kids between the ages of you know eight and fifteen or sixteen, um, and much of the you know commercial sensations of the last decade, the Hunger Games books and various other things, are aimed precisely. Uh, at, at, at them. And um, I, I think it's a fascinating point because, you know, what we do know, and I'm sure Jonah knows from NR's research and all this, we know that people, uh, adults under the age of 45 do not read. That adults over the age of 45 read and adults under the age of 45 do not read now. There are 310 million people in the country. So, you know, saying nobody reads, there's still 30 million people who read, you know, whatever. Um, in any in any one of these groupings, but um, uh, you know, if you're trying to build a, a circulation base for a publication, for example, you're in deep trouble because your audience is aging and it is not replacing itself with with adults who are younger. However, if this per, if if Drew is right, then you know we're in an interesting position because if we can just hold out. Uh, assuming that, you know, people who are now, you know, 10, 11, 12, when they right. turn 22 or 23, aren't paying 100% of their, you know, income to pay for their parents' uh, Medicare uh, and Medicaid. Um, well, they will they, through your kids. Uh, well, you know, my kids should pay for all of my health expenses. <laughs> this is my view, including, you know, right about now, uh, just to even things out. Um, but... Uh, I'm just saying that you know if they have disposable income and they've and they've really developed the habit of reading that this is the weird thing is that um, there's been this kind of presumption that okay well you know people when they hit 45 they'll st- but people don't start reading at 45 you know right, right. if you don't have the habit of reading but you know I don't hear that that's not what I hear I don't hear that kids read like masses of kids read all I hear is that they they play you know World of Warcraft and stuff like that so. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense that. I mean, uh, my, my, we're having you know, not that I want to air my issues with my kid, but you know, we're having <laughs> we're having trouble getting her to like reading as much as we would like her to, and I'm sure that's not an uncommon thing. But uh, you know, there's some things she loves to read. She loves these Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, you know, which are like way below her level, um, and everything else is sort of a chore unless, for whatever reason, it captures her imagination. But I have lots of friends with kids her age, and, and they do seem to be a lot of reading. But it seems to me that what is indisputably true is that parents buy books for their kids. 
right? And so it may be that that <laughs> that that kids' books are right. selling. Whether kids' right. books are being read is a different issue. It's the uh, foreign affairs magazine uh, equivalent, where <laughs> it's on it's it's on every bookshelf on every coffee table, but nobody really reads it. Uh, well, that, that, that's been a phenomenon with books for for decades, right? I mean, John knows this as well as I do. Is that it's a really significant portion of book buyers buy books to have them rather than to read them. Right. And, you know, that's uh, and I'm sure that will be true of, of, of kids as well. And it's true of magazines as well. It's a kind of affinity purchase or it's an affinity thing to own. But um, I wonder if it's going to be true, though, in the in the era of the iPad. Right. Because you cannot because you can't no, show it. That's right. right. No, iPad and the Kindle. There's no Veblen-esque conspicuous consumption. You can't tell people, oh, I have every issue of foreign affairs on my Kindle. You know, yeah. No one cares. Right. So it's a problem. But, you know, it's another interesting problem. Um, you know, I ride the New York subways every day and I read m- most of what I read on an iPad. And, you know, one thing that you can't do is look around the subway to see what people are reading because people are reading on reading devices and you can't see a dust jacket. Yeah. So you don't see 10 books, you know, the same six or seven books. To, oh, well, mm, people really seem to be enjoying X or Y. Not I think that they would necessarily be showing there right, are Fifty right. Shades of Grey right. uh, books. <laughs> I've seen a it. lot of them. Yeah. Uh, also, like half of them are actually just watching porn. So that's that. right. That's right. So, 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 so there's an upside to the cultural decline. <laughs> uh, 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 last, uh, last, just the last question, or last comment. I want to, I want to know. I mean, it's some more delicate here um, since we're talking about media. We're talking about media stories and things. Um, uh, last week, my uh, uh, full disclosure, a uh, dear friend of mine, Fareed Zakaria, was in a little trouble um, for what uh, was a complicated act of plagiarism, really spent uh, really more of a, a sort of a sloppy appropriation of, of, a, of a paragraph from a four-month-old or five-month-old New Yorker piece into one of his columns. He instantly sort of abjectly and unreservedly apologized. Um, and, that's, and then I think a new, uh, uh, CNN suspended him for a month. And time suspended for a month, and then after a few days, they unsuspended him as we knew they would. But the under the under story was always everybody who writes for a living knows exactly what happened, which was that some assistant uh, cobbled it together, and that's an embarrassing thing for someone to admit that actually a, 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 a significant portion of the writing under your name is uh, crafted sometimes and assembled by someone else. Um, is is there any difference between what, what he did and what Joan Alera did in um, in the New Yorker, or I mean, uh, is this is this something that everybody knew was going on, or is, is is there are there any is there any ripple effect to this story, or is it just one of these attempts at a teapot media stories that goes away? Um, well, first of all, I, I think I I'm right to speak for John here, although I don't know his process. Is that I don't think John or I have ever had somebody else draft or write something for us that we then put our names on right. uh maybe except outside of some corporate setting i don't know about you know the or political setting john was in where you have lots of authors dealing right. with stuff but um it is one of these on you know these these poorly kept secrets in this business about how many famous people don't write their own books um and you know certainly most politicians don't write their own books i think one of the worst and best things you can say about mitt romney's book is i think he actually wrote it um, but, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I also don't know. I, I don't know very many columnists who 
and I know that I know there are a couple examples of ones who do exist, but they're not very good and they're not very widely read of columnists who have people draft columns for them. I mean, I just right. I, I don't know how you could call yourself a writer and get through the day um, with that kind of process. But um, I don't know. Like I, I am generally um, less brutal on plagiarism stories, not because I like plagiarism and all that kind of stuff. My view about plagiarism stuff is that um, everybody is allowed the benefit of the doubt for one mistake. It's when right. it be, when it's the pattern. You know, it's like with people. It's like with hiring people. Everybody makes mistakes. You don't punish people for a mistake. You know, too much. You punish people for patterns. Patterns of mistakes, and um, it's the same thing with writing. If if someone is is in the process of rationalizing plagiarism to themselves, um, then that's a real that that is not, that is a real writerly sin. In terms of Jonah Lair, I'm I'm sort of torn. I think manufacturing quotes is evil and terrible, and you should never do that. But the the, the original charge against him was recycling the stuff that he had written before. <laughs> yeah, that kind of scared and, me because I Dear Lord, if that's <laughs> I, a, <laughs> I mean that was like I didn't realize that was a problem. I, I, I thought that, <laughs> that was a sign of my professionalism that I, I can, you know, you don't I can do it two different ways. <laughs> I know? mean what, Yeah, look there are three so there are three different things here, right? So there was repurposing your own material, uh, which may be a problem for his own employer who may not like that they're not publishing something that's entirely fresh or for the first person who published it who may have the copyright on it and therefore thinks that some property was appropriated. But that's not a big deal. Then there is <clears throat> plagiarism. And plagiarism, which is the actual lifting of an entire passage or more than that from one thing to another, acting as though it is yours – is a very big deal because it is, you know, it's an act of th- it's no, it's an act of theft. And indeed, one of the interesting things about plagiarists is what they resemble most is a kleptomaniac because they can't stop doing it. They're either it's either like a Ponzi scheme or they're kleptomaniacs. Like once they start, they can't stop, or they really want to get caught and they keep doing it and getting a frisson and look get more and more and more, you know, um, uh, brazen until they get caught. Fareed's case is something different because from what anybody can tell, this, uh, you know, appropriation of the paragraph from Jill Lepore's piece in The New Yorker um, is the only time in which it happened. And the paragraph was redrafted somewhat. Um, And this... It looked like like a summary, actually, a summary that then ended up... it was it was clearly lifted and with conscious knowledge that if you did that without changing stuff around you would be plagiarizing right. so as a result it's not exactly plagiarism and i would say that it's you know a misdemeanor um verging on a fe- <laughs> a misdemeanor verging on a felony um I'm I I've known I've known Fareed for a quarter century. I don't believe his explanations because he says now he says he was copying from one thing to another and he didn't know. This mm-hmm. is nonsense. I as Jonah says, I've never not written anything under my own name and I forget the things that I write the minute that I finished writing them because I write so much and I can't remember, you know, but- what I wrote last week. But having said that, I know when I'm writing something 
that whether I wrote it or whether it's a quote from somebody else. I mean, isn't that, I mean, isn't that I true? I mean, maybe it's three sentences comes from my own fingers yeah. or whether they, they come from, it's not like I took a note and then I rewrote it somewhere else. That's ridiculous. I know, I know what I'm doing that. And what's more people do it. You know, if you're taking a fact from a news story, you're not going to quote the, you know, if you're, if you've got, if your space is limited, if you, if you, if there's a, you know, 59% of so-and-so did thus and such, you may not, or, you know, it was in 2006 that, you know, somebody did thus and such. You're not necessarily going to cite right, right. source of the fact, though, on the Internet, you could now hyperlink to it. But it's a silly, you know, so that's the, the, the apology and the explanation are both disingenuous. Like he apologized unreservedly to get himself out of it. Right, and his right. explanation is not is not convincing. So what do you think the happened? Convincing explanation is the one that jo- that you started with, which is mm-hmm. that it came from a research assistant. Now, right. also, I worked at news magazines, and I can tell you that it used to be that news magazines. This was the <laughs> this was how news magazines were produced. Right. News magazines, ri- the writers of news magazines were plagiarists. That is to say, they took files from reporters in the field. They took them and they rewrote them to turn them into an article. And for a long time, those articles were, went without bylines, in part to make clear that there was no author of any individual article. And then in the early 70s, bylines came in. But if you wrote a Time cover story, you were appropriating material from three or four different reporters in the field and structuring it into a narrative. And there may be more uh, sort of a kind of acceptance of this on the part of the old hand, news magazine hands who, first of all, aren't checking any facts anymore. That's what I did when I worked in news magazines is I was a fact checker. Now, wasn't it, but, wasn't it true that when they would write a, they would write a piece and they'd write in big caps, check? TK. 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 No, TK. You would say you would say something like this. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan um, you know, ate a baby. Uh fat, you know, fact TK. You know, in a in parenthesis. <laughs> you know, uh, or not in that case. Or not in that case, because everybody knows he did. Everybody knows he did. Menachem Begin uh, killed three hundred people at Place TK, which meant was in, for some reason the letter K instead of C was used. And then the researcher was supposed to find the place where Menachem Begin killed 300 people, which is something that actually happened to me. And Menachem Begin actually never killed 300 people. So, you know, I had to go to the writer and say, I'm sorry, but uh, you have your facts wrong. <laughs> so, I, didn't, I didn't say TK that one. I said TK right. the place. Yep. So yes, so there was that, but the but but what would happen is if you were writing a cover story on New York Magazine, uh, you know, on 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 Israel, the Israel correspondent would send a bunch of what were called files. They would send them to the writer, and the writer would take them. They weren't that well written, but they were full, they were where the interviews came from, and where the sort of chronology of stuff came from, and then they would turn it into a news magazine narrative. Um, you know, uh, that's what that's how the form was done. Now, Fareed is a Harvard PhD, and he was a, editor of Foreign Affairs, and he doesn't come from a news magazine background. But there well, he would was a, he was an editor of Newsweek International. Yes, he was, but he doesn't come from a background. He did that when he was forty or you know thirty-five or something. 
so all I'm saying is that there may be there may be more of a kind of um, institutional comfort with the act of you know revo- re- rewriting something from somebody else. Right. right. Yeah. I, I, I think it's probably less that. I mean, the, the perfect example I was waiting for you to make is the last magazine that still kind of does that is The Economist. But um, I, I think that the thing with Fareed is just simply that he has become an institution, right? He's, he's in the Fareed Zakaria business at a pretty high level, and he's probably got this big staff. Um, you know, it sort of like it reminds me of when um, Al Franken wrote uh, one of those idiotic books, and he had. 27 research assistants. Um, and I'm sure there's a little Fareed Zakaria shop and the system broke down and he got, <laughs> he got burned by it. And, yeah. um, and you know, someone, someone's getting yelled at somewhere, you know, but note, there. note that that's not what he said. Whereas it was what Doris Kearns Goodwin and Stephen Ambrose both said when they got caught plagiarizing is they said, it wasn't me. It was my research assistant and because of that, in part, they got a pass. Yeah. In other words, they people said, "Well, they didn't really, you know, okay, it was yeah. sloppy, but they it was not a conscious act on their part of taking something from somebody else." Well, honestly, Fareed got a pass too. I mean, it, this thing is begun and ended within a week. Um, and and I think I mean, from my, from my perspective, he's my friend, so I I I, uh, I admire him in a lot of different ways. But I, I did admire the fact that even though everyone knew what happened, and there is probably some young person getting their head chewed off or being sort of uh, set on fire in some way, or maybe literally set on fire, um, he at least took it. At, at first, he said, "Is my fault, my fault entirely." And I have a, I mean, to me, that seemed like a, that seemed like a slight difference from now. Maybe it's one thing to say that it's easier to say it when when we realize, of course, with a giant book like Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote or Stephen Ambrose, of course, they're going to be research assistants. That's just how how you have to put together a book that uh, that giant. Whereas an eight hundred word column is slightly different. But um, I, it, it does. It did. I think it was part of the problem was that he had on the one hand, everyone who's a professional writer knew exactly what had happened. But people who you know maybe pay the money and expect to read a Fareed Zakaria piece and don't like the idea, even if it's true that, you know, in the same way they don't like the idea that the nurse does a lot of stuff for you when you go to the doctor and the doctor kind of comes in and looks at the uh, at the at the vitals, um, you know, hey, I want my doctor for the whole thing. I think a lot of people felt like, oh, hey, wait, I mean, I'm paying for Fareed Zakaria. I want Fareed Zakaria. Um, but <laughs> as as, but as you out, say, it's a giant empire, you know. But also. You know, that's- I was just going to say, when you say that one of his staffers has been set on fire, I think it is repugnant of you to traffic in these South Asian stereotypes. <laughs> well, I didn't say it was. A, <laughs> I didn't say it was because his dowry was insufficient. <laughs> insufficient. <laughs> I just said it's because of some horrible, horrible act. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, uh, wait, John. Hey, you're, gonna, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Look, here's the thing. Fareed is like a multimedia yeah. personality. Um, and you know, the problem is the more that you become this and I warn Jonah of this cause he's more successful than I, so I don't have this problem. So I can <laughs> be all high and mighty and hoity toity cause I don't go and no one asked me to go on TV anymore. Um, but you know, the problem with going on TV and giving a lot of speeches and uh, is that if you're also simultaneously going to write, you know, writing is the hardest at the hardest of those to do. It takes the most time. You have to read things. And so when you, when you find yourself, you know, in, in the need uh, to cut corners, 
um, you know, you're not going to cut corners on on when you give a speech because there's nothing, there's no way to cut that corner. So right. you're going to cut corners when you write because that's the thing that takes the most time. And so, you know, Fareed says he's now reevaluating re- his life. He's quit the Yale uh, Board of Overseers, and you know, he's going to refocus himself on his on his writing because an important part of his brand is being an intellectual. And this is the big thing because it's one thing for politicians to have books written for them. And it's one thing even for popular historians to have books written for them. But ideas people cannot have their things written for them. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the because that's all they that's all writing is, is the you know, you know, that's all that kind of writing is, is the extrapolation of ideas. I am so glad that I don't have that problem. <laughs> I don't think I've written about an idea. I don't think I don't think I've written about an idea. Put it that way. <laughs> well, that just makes you the slave of some defunct economist. <laughs> That's exactly There's right. an obscure reference. <laughs> um, was well, that was Keynes, right? Keynes. Yeah, That's you know, Every every dentist is the slave of some defunct economist. Right. 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 Um. So are we going to like – so what is the procedure here? Are we going to ask R- Ricochet members to come up with suggestions of what this podcast is called? Are we going to – Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a really good idea. I mean you know, we, we talked a lot about media. We don't have to talk about media every, every time we do this, although I, I think it's really interesting and nobody else seems to be doing it. And it, it, it is something we, the three of us are interested in. And I, speaking for me personally, I don't get enough time to talk about it and I would love to talk about it more. And you guys uh, certainly have it. I, I, on on – I mean, I, I did not begin the podcast as I would like to begin the podcast, which I made a note about yesterday and I forgot to do it, which is a joke that I heard, um, which is uh, I, would, I would like to start it. And if we can get uh, 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 Scott to rejigger the timeline, um, I would like to begin this podcast by telling you a joke that I heard, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, and we don't hear enough jokes. So here's the joke. How do you know when your girlfriend is getting fat? I don't know. How do you know when your girlfriend is getting <laughs> When she starts to fit into your wife's clothes. Ah. Oh! <laughs> Hi-oh! Hi-oh! <laughs> uh, see, my problem is that there aren't... There used to be a golden age gold joke. <laughs> Jerry Vale. Yeah, so who follows, Steve Lawrence or Jerry Vale? That's a really... Uh... <laughs> we got a big show tonight, fellas. Tip your waitresses. I'm here all week. Uh, I don't think we hear enough jokes. All right, you want a joke? Yeah, I want a joke. Okay, it's a joke that's in the next issue of, uh, of commentary. So there's an old man sitting on a park bench, and he's sobbing. A jogger comes up to him and says, sir, what's the matter? And the man says, you don't understand. My wife died, and then the next year I met a woman. She's 40 years younger than I am. She cooks, she cleans, she's beautiful. And, this, and at night... When we go to bed, oh, she thinks it's the most wonderful. I can't. My life is a living paradise now. For the first time, I'm 83 years old and I'm living in paradise. It's a, and the man said, so why are you crying? And he says, I can't remember where I live. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I don't have a joke. Um but I did learn something, which I've been testing around the office today. I learned something on Twitter that I think is mildly amusing. Take the word, three words. Good, eye, as in you're like your ocular organ, your eyeball, right? Good, eye, 
and the word might, as in might doesn't make right. You cannot say the three together in a natural way without sounding Australian. Give it a try. Good eye, might. Good eye, might. Having said that, (laughs) when would you speak those words in sequence? When I give you a piece of paper and say, read these three words. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, I have no idea. But it it works around the office. It's entertaining the interns. You know, those interns, someone needs to get them writing Fareed Zakaria's columns, obviously. They They seem a little under-occupied. And also they know how to put words in a unique order rather than an order that's already come before. Um, (laughs) That's good. All right. (laughs) Oh boy! That, that that would be how I would begin a podcast if I was going to begin one. Um, yeah, so I think we should leave it up to our listeners to try to come up with a title. Although we could probably come up with one, but I mean, does that does that seem like a, does that seem like a fair sort of uh, universe for us to not to con, 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 confine ourselves to, but as a sort of a departure point? Sure. Yeah, I mean, media. I mean, I would like to do a little more pop culture. Maybe we yeah, but some TV shows that have been around. You know, um, uh. You know, now with the age of DVR, it's not like anyone can't catch up if we want to talk about something. That's true. That's true. Are you guys now? Are you guys uh, into Breaking Bad? Either one of you? I love Breaking Bad. Love Breaking Bad. I watched uh, seven episodes from the first season, and you know, if I want to be extremely depressed, I'll just watch. You know, read news stories about Todd Akin. I don't. I don't need. That's the most depressing show ever. I don't need that in my life, and I'm like 40 episodes behind, so it would be like 40 hours of depression that I, I just can't take. Uh, treat yourself. It's not depressing. Okay. It's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. Okay. This is going to be like now, Twitter for you. This is like Twitter where you're against it, you, know, you, you go on, yeah, you don't yeah. want it, and then suddenly you're back. Okay, Wait, I, quickly, I have to go, but I, one yeah, quick yeah. thing I want to say. I, last night I finished <laughs> the fifth book. In the Game of Thrones series. I've now read the five books of the Game of Thrones series. I'm the only person who's read five books of the Game of Thrones series. And only I've only watched two episodes of Game of Thrones. Do you know what I think of this? I wasted my life. It was six weeks a waste. This is like Lost. This thing is a scandal. The Game of Thrones <laughs> novels is a scandal. The guy throws out plots and plots and characters. There's now like a thousand characters. And you're going to this city and that place and this island and that through the narrow sea and this and the fifth book ends and you're exactly where you were at the end of the first book except with four books and various people getting killed and other things so why are you surprised because i'm an idiot that's why okay well i have not read them but uh, you know what George R. R. Martin, whatever that guy's name is, he's like the one author ever to get death threats um, telling him that he better not he better not stop writing. <laughs> uh, like literally, like people said, if you stop writing these books, I'll kill you. Um, it's misery. Which, it's misery. Which is yeah, it's like misery. It's a good place to be as a writer. And and while I, I, I take John's criticisms all to heart, I would rather have the millions of dollars that Martin is sitting on. Having written these things and we- and weather John's stinging criticism, <laughs> than not. So. Me, me too. But he could like just, just, just wrap it up already. <laughs> wrap it up. Make something happen. Finally, it's snowing. That's the one thing that changed. Is finally the winter has come. That's all I can tell you. I don't. Spoiler alert. They say the winter is coming. Winter is coming. Win- well, winter is here. That's what, great. What? 
5,000 pages. Didn't you know that, though? <laughs> Why are you surprised? Is, is there such a thing as a fast-moving 5,000-page novel in a series of many novels? I mean, I'm not asking for fast-moving. I'm just saying that we're back where we were. That's all I'm telling you. We're back where we were, and nothing is anywhere near resolution. So... That's my well, story. Well, you know, Moses wrote five books and things are still unresolved, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. That, now, there's something to end on. <laughs> exactly right. Something biblical and, and appropriate. Uh, hey, fellas, this is a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, anything you guys want to plug for the next uh, next uh, couple of days, next week? I know there's, uh, is there a new commentary coming out? There's a new commentary coming out in September with a big uh, cover story by me called The American Moment. Excellent. And, and, yeah, and there's a funny joke, for too. And there's a couple of jokes and, uh, and articles by Andy Ferguson, Arthur Herman, Tevi Troy, James Pethokoukas, Todd Lindbergh, Phil Terzian, Joseph Epstein, Jack Wertheimer, Ron Radosh. Wow. William Vogley. And a special guest appearance by Larry Storch. <laughs> <laughs> it is Balloon. <laughs> uh, uh, Joan, anything you want to plug? Uh, not really. I got a piece in the new Claremont Review of Books, and I'm going to the convention, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay, cool. All right, I will, I will not be hey, there. Enjoy the t- enjoy the hurricane. The hurricane. <laughs> I hear there's That's a metaphor. You, you, you follow me on Twitter. I'll be live tweeting the conventions. Beautiful, or, or at least the open bars. We will. So, uh, so will I, but I'll I'll be in Manhattan. Thank you, John Pedoritz, editor of Commentary. Thank you, Joan. Goldberg, uh, conservative voice extraordinaire, and NRNRO. This uh, podcast will appear on commentary on the, on the website. Best blo- one of the best blogs out there, of course, is Contentions. You, you put it on your bookmark, and it'll appear on the pages, the front page of National Review Online, which uh, domiciles both me and Jonah often. Thank you, fellas, for joining us. Thank you for listening, and we hope to do more of these. And if you like what you hear, please join the conversation at ricochet.com. Join the conversation.